Easter, how great it was. It was so celebratory to be outside greeting. I just appreciated greeting all your family and friends that you invited. Super fun. Coming in, Charlie and the band did so great. Just lifting up song. And I just imagine God hearing us and being so pleased with what he's hearing. Of course, Susie brought a great message, and I'm still thinking about, you know, how I wander from mercy over into the merit plan. And then the choir, Josh, stands up and goes like this, and the choir stands up, and then Isaac is playing the violin, and then we flower. It was just a beautiful day and so celebratory, so fantastic. And now today, after Easter, we consider this question of, now what? Now what? You know, Jesus rose from the dead. Now what? What did that mean for Peter in his life? What did it mean for those first followers of Christ in their lives? And what does it mean for me and for you today that this happened? And of course, now what as a question fundamentally requires that something happened. I mean, you wouldn't ask now what if nothing happened. So we're asking this question, now what? And this kind of question comes up at Easter. And actually, a friend of mine from 10 years ago, her voice is ringing in my head every Easter. And she kind of asks this question of, how does this one guy dying have anything to do with me? You know, I just don't get it. And she was earnestly asking that question and thinking about Jesus in that way. And the reality is, death visits us all. And so you can think about billions of people have died, and it has accomplished nothing for you or me. So how is it that this one man accomplished something, that something changed? Well, I fully admit, as we enter into this topic this morning about Jesus, that I don't understand fully the mechanics of how Jesus saves us, what his death and resurrection exactly do, but I fully believe that it does. Now, I imagine many of you this morning hopped in your car, turned the key, or I hear you, some of you push a button, which is a very unnatural way to start a car. Um, but if you imagine turning a key and your engine started and you drove yourself over here this morning. Now, some of you fully understand what happens when you turn that key, how the engine works and how air and gas are mixed in the cylinder and pistons go up and down and turn the crank and all that. You understand the mechanics of the engine. Some of you have no clue. You just know you turn the key, something happens, and you drive away. And in a kind of an odd way, it's like that with Jesus as well, that we don't need to know all the mechanics to understand everything about the cross and resurrection. We just need to turn the key, believe that it is true, and function from that place. So, that is sufficient for us. That's kind of the, hopefully, the thought underlying what we want to talk about this morning. Because that is our first step, isn't it, into faith. Our first step is to agree that something happened on the cross and in the empty tomb. To believe something happened there and to believe that it impacts my life. And I think this is one of the most fascinating things about Jesus, because right after Jesus rises from the dead, people start believing in him, and their lives change. Something changes in them. And so you think about these people, um, 
experiencing that, they don't understand the mechanics. They just believe. And if you listen to the daily practice yesterday, so handy, so good. Um, the scripture came from Acts where Peter was giving the first sermon. And he was explaining, hey, Jesus, whom you crucified, was raised to life and is now exalted to the right hand of God. And he is now your Lord and Master. He says this. He doesn't explain like the philosophy or the rational or the why it all makes sense. He just says, this happened. And then in the now what, he invites them to turn that key with Jesus. And here's what he said. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. There's something happening. And then said Peter and the other apostles in response to that. Or they said to Peter, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins. There's something that happened. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's something that happens. The promise is for you and your children and for all of you who are far off, which is us today, these many years later. For all who call on our Lord, call on the Lord our God. Oh, I'm not reading very well. I'm sorry. You, get, you, you read it. And that's as simple as it is, right? Peter simply says these things to them. Hey, Jesus rose from the dead. He's now exalted with God. He is the Lord and Messiah. Believe. Repent, and these things will be true of you. You will be forgiven. You will receive the Holy Spirit. And we don't know or understand exactly what Peter knew at that time about all the mechanics of Jesus' resurrection. But Peter knew enough. He knew enough to believe and to move forward with that information. And then his life changed, and he started seeing other people's lives change. So, interesting quote from a scholar thinking about this primitive church situation. This guy, Peter Schaff, writes that the primitive church teachers, which is Peter, lived more in the thankful enjoyment of redemption than in logical reflection on, on it. We perceive in their exhibitions of this blessed mystery the language rather of enthusiastic feeling than of careful definition and acute analysis. It's interesting. You think about them back then, right after Jesus rose from the dead, they were just caught up in the enthusiastic feeling of it all. And we, 2,000 years later, some of that enthusiastic feeling has worn off, and we've moved a little bit more into logical reflection and careful analysis. You know, in these 2,000 years, you know, the, the cross, the tomb, has been dissected and interrogated and examined and scrutinized. And that blessed mystery that they were excited about maybe has become even more mysterious through all our analysis than it has become more clear. So I imagine those first followers of Jesus in their experience of, okay, Jesus rose from the dead, and they did this. They jumped in the air and said, we are saved, woo! And I used to jump way higher than that, I'm just saying. 
I can imagine them being excited and caught up in that feeling. And I, I don't even need to imagine. I can just think about people and their response today with the more concerned look on their face, saying, hmm, what exactly are we saved from? And how does this Jesus' death and resurrection save us? And I think that's still a legitimate question, and God is responding to that question still today. But it says something about our cultural context that we live in when we approach the empty tomb. Well, the word that is used to describe what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in resurrection is atonement. It's interesting because this word is not coming from the biblical languages of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. It is an English word that means at one meant. At one, in harmony with someone. And so the atonement has these two senses. One sense, if the atonement is describing the saving work that God did to reconcile people to himself. And then the second sense, that it is the state of us people having been reconciled to God. So this at-one-ment, that we have been made one with God, that we have been brought into his presence. And so this word atonement has been kind of crazy throughout the centuries. As people are in churches and theologies are trying to figure out what does atonement mean, you know, what is the specific mechanics of it, trying to explain it. And a lot of different metaphors and images and language is used to describe it and to try to understand it. And as you can expect, churches and denominations have different priorities on different things. But the bottom line is that throughout these centuries, Christians emphasize that Jesus is the Savior because he forgave our sins at the cross. That is a unifying factor. So no matter which of the images or language you pick up in Scripture, there's this common theme in them all. So if you look at Scripture, there's more than 10 motifs that group the language around atonement. You know, these different images and metaphors to explain it and understand it. And of those 10, there's a couple of scholars, Joel Green and Mark Baker, who took those 10 and grouped them into five categories. And they just kind of looked around ancient life and the spheres of life and grouped them into the things that people would understand. So here's the five, and what we're going to do this morning is kind of roll through these pretty quickly. So one grouping category motif, the court of law, justification. Second, kind of public sphere of life, the world of commerce, redemption. Third, personal relationship, reconciliation. Fourth, the sphere of the religious, worship, sacrifice. And fifth, the battleground, triumph over evil. So that's what we're going to look at quickly this morning. But in looking at these, there's a common theme in those five. The common theme is that humans have a problem. We have a problem, and it needs a solution. And however you articulate the problem and describe it and define it, that then correlates to the solution that is given. So you can imagine when Scripture talks about these different language sources like, you are blind, that's your problem, what do you need? You need illumination. Or your problem is you are a slave, what do you need? You need liberation. 
or you are lost. What do you need? You need to be found. So the Scriptures has all kinds of different language pointing to extrapolating the problem that humans have. So all these have kind of an approach to the problem and then an appropriate solution following. And the first category is the court of law. And the court of law articulates the problem is that God is holy and humans, because of sin, are separated from God. There's, there's this problem between God and people. And in this court of law image, what's happening is that when you commit a crime, a penalty or a punishment follows. That's court of law kind of thing. You know, in the Bible, we hear the language of we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, the wages of sin is death. You know, something has happened, and now there's a penalty or a punishment that is required. And so on the cross, Jesus took our place. He took our place in taking our penalty and punishment on himself. So he removes that from us, and it isn't there anymore. And that is justification. God's act of removing guilt and the penalty of sin, while at the same time giving us the righteousness of Christ. That's justification in the court of law. We read this in the language of Paul, and Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more should we save from God's wrath through him? So there's that using that justification language to describe the atonement. Now, somehow, in the mystery of God, God is able to hold both his justice and his love together at the same time. And I think where the rubber meets the road for this is that God is able to love the sinner while hating the sin. God is somehow able to separate those two in us. I am not so good at that, and I can't even do that for myself. I cannot separate my sin from, like, me. It just seems so connected. But God, in the mystery of him, can love us and hold things in justice. Brian Hedberg sent me a video. We're kind of talking about atonement this week. And in it, used Anselm's example of um, a diamond, that we are like a diamond. You just imagine a brilliant diamond, and we, as a diamond, have fallen into the muck and mire of this world and life. And God from heaven could just pronounce forgiveness. Say, you're forgiven. I pronounce forgiveness from heaven. But what will that accomplish? Not much, because we are still stuck in the muck and the mire. But in God's justice, God sends his son down into the muck and mire to pull out the diamond, to clean us, to restore us, to renew us. And that's the image of what God does in his justice to come down to us and to pull us out. And so from that position of Christ holding us, that is where Paul can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? So in that sense, God in his justice has reached down and taken care 
of the separating problem and brought us to him. Well, that's the first category, the court of law. The second category is the world of commerce, redemption. And this articulates the problem as humans are slaves to sin. We are in slavery. We are captive to it. And this idea of redemption is to buy back. Jesus paid the required price to purchase humanity out of slavery. And here's how Paul uses that language. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So we hear this image of redemption where Jesus has paid the price to buy us out of slavery, to free us. Third category, personal relationship, reconciliation. Here, this personal relationship articulates the problem as a breakdown in the relationship between people and God. Reconciliation involves a change from hostility and fragmentation, and a change to harmony and fellowship. That's the reconciliation that God is accomplishing at the cross. And so in this language, Jesus is the one who heals the relationship. He restores peace and harmony to the relationship. Again, here's how Paul describes it using this language. Once you are alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. So you see that contrast of alienation exists over here, but the solution is what Jesus did in his body, that now he can present us holy, without blemish, free of accusation. And again, here is where we come back to this ability that God has to separate the sin from the sinner. And it's a mystery to me how this exactly works, but somehow God does this, and I have a hard time. Some of you remember my black Suburban. It was a beautiful machine, and now you know that I have a one-year newer white Suburban. And um, you can imagine this situation, and this is, I'm going to use Brian Hedberg again as an example, but this is not true. Don't get mad at Brian. But you can imagine Brian borrowing my black Suburban, saying, hey, can I borrow it? And I'm like, oh, sure. And Brian takes my Suburban, does his project, and then he returns it, just trashed. It's broken. And he, he's like, ah, oh, Tim, I am sorry. I had a little accident. You know, no one got hurt. It's okay. Um, you know, I was texting and driving, and I drove off the road and hit a pole. Um, anyway, your suburban was old and kind of junky, so I'll just pay you the amount, you know, kind of that it was worth. Um, and can I borrow your new suburban? Because i got to finish my project. How should I feel about Brian? <laughs> of course, Brian is doing the just thing of paying me for the damage, justice is being met, right? But there still is a break in our relationship. There's a huge disappointment in the relationship, something that needs to be healed and restored. 
I would not loan Brian my Suburban again. But somehow in my heart, I would have to forgive him, right? And that goes beyond the just thing to something that happens in reconciliation, which is restoring peace back into the relationship. And in our relationship with God, it is that same thing, that somehow, because of the cross, God is able to take care of sin. And it is done. It is set aside. It is paid for whatever metaphor we're using to explain that. And now when it comes to us coming before God, Jesus is able to present us as holy and blameless without accusation. Just think about that. We stand before God and he has no accusation of us. What a beautiful picture that is. Because in this way, God is able to deal with sin and that's taken care of. And now God is able to focus on loving the sinner. And that's reconciliation with God. Well, the fourth category is worship. And worship articulates the problem, a little bit of a different kind of problem. It's this problem that we as created beings want to worship our creator, but how do we do that? You know, it's not exactly the same kind of problem as the others, but it's this simple reality that there's a difference between God and us, and we are trying to reach out to him and express our worship to him. You know, if you look at um, like history of sacrifice in the world, it is fascinating to see that this desire to sacrifice to God, to blood sacrifice or food sacrifice or whatever sacrifice, to offer God something of what we have as a statement to him. It exists all over. And as you look into the Old Testament, God picked up on that and said, okay, I'm going to create a system that you will participate in this kind of system of annual sacrifices and offerings and practices throughout the year. So God covenants with his people in that way. And also God covenants with them in himself, making a commitment of himself into that system. So could God have chosen a different system than sacrifice? Sure, he's God. He could have chose a different way, but this is the way he chose, and this is the way that he did it with Israel, and so that's the system that he followed. Um, often, dictionaries are not very fun to read, but um, I thought this was very good. The International Dictionary of the Bible, explaining sacrifice, said a religious act, sacrifice is a religious act belonging to worship in which an offering is made to God of some material object belonging to the offerer. This offering being consumed in the ceremony in order to attain, restore, maintain, or celebrate friendly relations with the deity. The motives actuating the offerer may vary from worthy to unworthy, or they may express faith, express repentance or adoration, all these things together. But the main purpose of the sacrifice is to please the deity to secure his favor. It's kind of that idea of sacrifice that we have. And then when we see Jesus come onto the scene, immediately this sacrifice language is picked up and applied to Jesus. So John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, right away says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is immediately put into this category of sacrifice. Because Jesus made himself a sacrifice, 
that would secure God's favor for all people for all time. And Jesus would put an end to blood sacrifice as a practice of worship. And so what do we do moving forward? We're not blood sacrificing or offering grain. Now, we are making the sacrifice of our life to offer our lives to God. This language of we are a living sacrifice, giving our life and our devotion to God. It's that heart devotion is the sacrifice moving forward. Well, fifth, fifth category, the battleground, triumph over evil. And the problem in this situation really has less to do with humans and is more in the heavenly realm where there is a battle between God and the powers of evil. And Paul describes the powers of evil in his letter to the Ephesians where he describes this experience and the existence of the powers of evil. Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So in this category, Jesus' death and resurrection are directed at vanquishing the evil empire and establishing God's reign. So you can see in Jesus' life, everything that Jesus did to heal people, that was moving in on the enemy territory. Every time Jesus healed someone, he was taking a little bit of power away from Satan and freeing that person up, liberating them from the stronghold they're being held in. And it's interesting, we see this language, although we don't necessarily think often about this battle between good and evil that God is accomplishing at the cross, but it's the language that's often stuck together with the empty tomb. So another place where Paul uses this language Paul says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, this relationship language, reconciliation, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. There's that justification language, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then here's the next piece. Having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. So curious that that language is all kind of stuck together. And Paul just uses it so freely. Well, I hope as we look at these five categories and just dip our toe into them this morning, that it gets you thinking about the atonement and what it means for you and asking the question, now what? What do you do with the empty tomb? Well, first, we take that step of faith to believe. We put our life into it. And second, we start living as passionate, devoted followers of Christ. We start living out a life that is devoted to God with Him as our focus, our source, our Lord and Master. So now what? Now what? The cross means that we are justified, that Jesus has paid the penalty, he has cleared the debt, and so now we live with confidence that we can approach God and live with no fear of punishment. Now what? The cross means that we are redeemed. Jesus bought us out of slavery. He has he paid the price 
to take us out of captivity of sin and death and bring us to himself. So now we can live. We have the ability to choose, the ability to choose God, to do good, to be part of God's plan of restoration and love. Now what? The cross means that we are reconciled, that Jesus has given us his perfection so we can stand before God holy and blameless. And we can approach God with confidence that he wants us to come to him and he is glad to bring us into his presence. So now what? The cross means that we are worshipers. Jesus made the final sacrifice so that we could offer our lives to God. And we can say to God, all that we have, all that we are, belong to you, and I dedicate this one and only life to you. Now what? The cross means that we have victory, that Jesus has vanquished the evil empire so that we are free from the power over us, and now we can live in God's kingdom, and we are free to live toward God to build his kingdom. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son down into the muck and mire to pull us out, to bring us to you. And God, I pray that we would embrace all that Jesus did on the cross, and God, all that you did in the empty tomb, so that we can live this life with you. God, this is a freedom that we can have with you. I pray that we would embrace it fully live it with you, be thankful, and spread the word that you are offering this to all people. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.